Our scripture passage this morning is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 and 15 to 22. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And down to chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And down to, chapter, to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whenever he, the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with, with flesh. And the rib of, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when he says, uh, this is the word of the Lord, the proper response is, uh, thanks be to God, or praise be to God. So this is the word of the Lord. So you guys going to stay there? This is where I'm going to be. So it's up to you. I'm just going to tighten this up and, oops. Well, my name is uh, Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. We have two of us that are uh, in the role of uh, leading and guiding our congregation. And then we have uh, elders, uh, lay elders, and then we have a leadership team, and then we have missional community leaders, and then we have team leaders on Sunday mornings. And so we are a church that is filled with people that are desiring to lead and to uh, take us forward. And I'm thankful to the Lord for how we can partner together in doing that. Uh, you might be, have been with us now for like the last 10 weeks. I think this is week 10 in this adventure that has been Church of the City so far. And I just want to say, I think we're starting to get over that honeymoon phase. If you've, if you're married, you you know what I'm talking about. You know, the first couple of months, it's everything's fun, everything's wonderful. And then you get to that point where it's like, wow, I didn't realize this person did those things. And wow, that's kind of frustrating and annoying. (laughs) Welcome to Church of the City today. Um, (laughs) If that hasn't happened yet, it's bound to start happening. I just want to say that if there are questions that you have about things, if you're kind of going, what is this church all about? Please talk to us about it. Don't assume that we are in the dark on your feelings. Um, There are a lot of things that we do think through. Um, So please come forward and just let us know if there's concerns that you have. And we want to talk through those things with you and hopefully um, lead us to a place of where we're trying to go as a church 
church. And the mission and vision of Church of the City is to be a family of missionary disciples, praying in Guelph as it is in heaven. In the scriptures, we see that the early church was described as a family. They literally loved one another. They literally saw one another as brothers and sisters. And we're simply asking the question here at the church, what would it look like for us to treat each other as brothers and as sisters? What would we be willing to do for one another? What would we give up for one another? We're then saying that we are missionaries, that as Jesus was sent by the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you and I are also missionaries that we are sent, that we are commissioned to go to the world and to share the good news of the gospel. And then lastly, we become disciples of Jesus and that we're followers of him, we're learners of him, and we want other people to, to do that as well. And so we teach and we train and we challenge one another in smaller uh, missional communities and in what we call DNA groups of guys and girls getting together separately to challenge and to sharpen one another and to help us become more like Jesus. And then we pray collectively kingdom, in a kingdom, kingdom-centered way to say, we want to see a taste of heaven in our city. We want to have a taste of heaven on this earth. We believe that that God is going to return. Jesus is going to return to this earth and he's going to restore everything. But we believe that in the meantime, there are times and we can actually experience part of that restoration in the here and now. And so this is what Church of the City is all about. If you want to be part of that, please jump on board. And I know that a number of us here are just kind of checking things out. Please don't be in a perpetual state of checking things out. Um... Please come to the place where you're like, God, is this where you want me to be? And if it is yes, then jump on board and get involved. There's many areas. And as we serve uh, one another and as we serve the city together, our desire is to see people come to know Jesus Christ, get baptized, and then serve the world. This church is not solely for the purpose of you making friends. It's a lovely byproduct. It's a lovely thing that does happen. This church's purpose is so that we can share the gospel with a broken and hurting world. So if the first thing that you think when you come to a reunion or I didn't really feel like I made a friend today, okay, I'm sorry that you didn't make a friend, but who can you take the message of Jesus to and they can be your new friend? All right, let's just kind of change our perspective. It's just some things to be thinking about and praying about. And so the reason we're doing the series that we're in right now, it's called Vocation. And so James answered the question last week, why would we take seven weeks of our year to talk about our jobs? Well, maybe you've been in the church for a long time and the reality is not a lot of churches really talk about our jobs. Uh, growing up, I had a number of jobs or a number of things that I did for work. Here are a couple of examples. I was a tutor. The very first job I ever had, grade seven, I was a tutor. I then primed tobacco, um, so meaning I p- picked tobacco leaves off of tobacco plants. Um, crazy, interesting job if you want to talk more about that. I was then a pig farm laborer, so I processed baby piglets. I gave them shots. I clipped their tails off. We can talk about that later, too, if you're interested. I was then a forklift driver. I worked at Dairy Queen for a little while. I was uh, working in the Sobeys meat market. I worked at a car wash. I was a concrete former. I was then a construction laborer. Uh, Then I was a youth pastor and then church planter and now whatever you'd call me now. I've had quite a few jobs. Now, the interesting thing about each of these jobs is that I never really had much of an understanding or perspective on how I could see what I was doing as God's role for me in that particular time. And so the reason we've called this series Vocation is because, as we learned last week, a vocation is a calling. It's what God has designed and created you to do. And as we saw in the first week, as James talked about, is that work is actually in God's original design for you and for me. That work is our design and our dignity. And so James explored the reality that by working, we actually declare the nature of God as a creator and as creative. 
We said that your work does not make you valuable. God does. And we said that work is an invitation to freedom. Now, if you're to study many of the other origin stories, and there was one very popular one in, in ancient Babylon, and it was called the Enuma Elish. Everyone say Enuma Elish. And in the origin story of Enuma Elish, like in Christianity, we have our origin story that is Genesis, but there's this other origin story um, that is called Enuma Elish. And in this story, the the story goes along the lines that there is a god uh, named Marduk, and that then there are other gods underneath of him. And these other gods are working, and they hate it. They are upset that they are called and need to work. And so they complain to Marduk and they say, Marduk, would you make something else that will do all of our work for us because we don't like working? And so this is what Marduk said. And we're gonna, I'm going to put it on the screen here. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. And he shall be charged with the service of the gods that they may be at ease. Now, what's fascinating is you study a lot of the other origin stories that are in the world. You have the same sort of theme that work is actually a bad thing, and it's something that we just have to do, right? You essentially uh, work so that you can live. But if we look at the scriptures and what we explored last week and what we'll see in this week is that this is not God's vision nor design. The very beginning start of the scriptures is God working, So work is not below him. Work is what he does. And then he creates us as co-workers or co-laborers and co-partners to work. And so we felt it was so critical to talk about how our faith and how our work intersect. So if you've never heard something like this before, welcome. We're so glad you're here, and I hope that it's helpful to you. Um, We're going to go backwards, Peter, to that slide that you showed. If you want additional resources on this topic, please check out Timothy Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. Uh, You can also check out John Mark Comer's book, Garden City, and another one by Ben Witherington III called Work, A Kingdom Perspective on Labor. These will all be extremely helpful resources for you, and if you are reading these things, you'll find that there's going to be a lot of carryover between what we're talking about and what are found in these books. Well, today we're answering three questions. You ready for the three questions? They're on your sermon notes if you don't have one. First question is, what is the purpose and opportunity given in our work? The second question is, why do we work? And then the third question is, how do we work? Very, very important, I think, helpful questions for you and I as we're considering our jobs and what we do on this planet and our vocation, our calling, or what God has called and designed us to do. So the first question, let's start there. What is the purpose and opportunity in work? Well, Kyle read for us uh, Genesis 1 verse 28. We're going to go back there to read it again. It says this, and God blessed them. Isn't that amazing? And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have domination over, the, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What scholars and theologians have called this is that this is our cultural mandate. This is our cultural mandate. So let's go through things one by one. He says, be fruitful and multiply. What's God commissioning his creatures to do? Well, have kids. Get married. Have children. Procreate. It's part of his design. Remember, this is before fallen world. 
So you maybe are a stay-at-home mom, and someone has asked you before, do you work? And you have said back, um, no, I'm a stay-at-home mom. That is unfortunate that they don't consider stay-at-home mothering, working, or a vocation or a calling. Because according to the scriptures, this is actually part of the focal point of our creation, is to have children Now, I think this is also why some of us in the challenge to have children, and now because of the fall, infertility can be so difficult. Because part of God's design is that we would have kids, that we would multiply, that we would procreate. But notice then what he says is he says, fill the earth. So the commission is not just have sex, have children, you're done. But it's to fill the earth. So what is meant by fill the earth? Well, fill the earth is really more than just having a family. He's alluding to starting a civilization. He's saying, I just don't want a species. I want a society. It's fascinating. In Genesis 1 and 2, the picture of creation is a garden. But in Revelation 21 and 22, which describes when Christ will return, it's a city. So in the middle, you can see that God's original plan and design is that we would work and that we'd fill the earth, that we'd start local churches, that we'd start community centers, that schools would be started, that this is the commission that he gave us as his creation to fill the earth, start a society, not just to be a set of species. It's interesting because if you look at what God uh, says of the other creatures of creation, he says, let them multiply. But with humanity, he says, intentionally multiply, fill the earth, start a society. He then says the word subdue. Subdue it. What's he talking about subdue? Well, it seems to indicate that there's a certain wildness to creation. And so what subdue is really referring to is harnessing the raw materials of the earth to make and to make something beautiful. Okay, so let's go backwards. What are we talking about? So fill the earth, start a society, subdue it, harness the raw materials of the earth, and make something beautiful. This is incredible. This is what God has asked us to be part of, to partner with him in doing. And then the next part of the, the, the direction for us in the cultural mandate is to have dominion or rule. Now the word for dominion and rule here is radah. Can everyone say radah? In the original Hebrew, it was radah. And what it means is it's king language, and it could be translated to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. Now, this is not about human domination to exploit nature, but instead a stewardship and trusteeship to humanity. So let's review. Start a society, harness the raw materials of the earth and make something beautiful, and then partner with me and partner with God in taking the world somewhere. This is amazing. And why this is so significant is that because that every human being on the planet, it means that every one of us is bursting with raw, uncut potential, and we are given the role of cultivating what is before us. Isn't that amazing? This is God's vision for our work of what we would do from nine to five and use in the rest of our lives. So work is not a bad thing. If we see it as a God thing, we actually see it as an incredible opportunity to partner with him and that he gives us that responsibility. Not like, well, I don't want to work, so you go do it all. 
He, we partner with him. It's like we are kings and queens. If you're a bit of a, you like studying history, it's kind of like there's a king over uh, a large nation. And then in little individual cities or villages, there's kings that are harnessing the raw materials of whatever they're around them to have little healthy cities. This is essentially what the Bible is calling us to, what the scriptures are calling us to as Christians, to have a vision and view of our work. So therefore, this is what work is. Work is cultivating and refining what has been given by God for the good of creation. And as Tim Keller says, and he's far more uh, brilliant than me, he says, work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Let me read that again. Work is rearranging, this is on a slide. Work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So let's talk about some work that, that could be involved in this. Well, if you're, what if you're an artist? Do we have any artists in the room? Raise your hand if you would say, I'm an artist. Now, not, you don't have to be doing a full-time casting, but you just love art. So it's making something beautiful out of words, notes, a canvas, and paint. This is what Ben Witherington III says in Work, A Kingdom Perspective on Labor. I would suggest that some of the most important work anyone could do is work that moves one to be a better person, inspires one to think about the relationship of truth and beauty and goodness, motivates one to do a better job of glorifying God, and art fill, fits the bill in all of these categories. So if you're an artist, you are harnessing the raw sounds or notes into making something beautiful, taking words and moving people with poetry or spoken word. This is a beautiful thing. If you're a teacher, you're shaping the minds of students, the raw material that is the human brain. If you're a chef, you create things with beautiful taste. If you're a farmer, you cultivate the land and grow delicious food. If you're that in food delivery, you take the food from the farmer to the grocery store so the rest of us can then go to the store. And then we have stalkers of shelves who take the food that has been delivered and place it on the shelves so someone can purchase, eat, and make their own recipes to feed their families. If you're an electrician, you're literally using the electrical currents to bring light to homes and to houses. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you're shaping the minds of your children and raising independent, respectful, and culture-making adults. This is God's vision, and I could go on and on listing off many of the things that, that some of us in this room, and maybe all of us in this room, are participating in. It's amazing that God gives us this opportunity. Well, then we've got to ask the question, but Why? And what is my motivation? Well, let's go to Genesis 2, verse 15. This is what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Let's start with work it. This is the Hebrew word abad. Can everyone say abad? abad. This word means service. Therefore, Work is service. Now, what's interesting is Abad is also used in the Old Testament to speak of worship. So in the same way as you think about this, that in the ways that we service and in the ways that we, in the ways that we serve and the way that we work, it also could be worship. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. That's so incredible. 
So therefore, what is work and why do we work? Well, work ultimately is service to God. Keller in Every Good Endeavor says, Christians should be aware of this revolutionary understanding of the purpose of their work in the world. We are not to choose jobs and, and conduct our work to fulfill ourselves and accrue power. For being called by God to do something is empowering enough. We are to see work as a way of service to God and our neighbor. And so we should both choose and conduct our work in accordance with that purpose. If the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, then our work inevitably becomes less about work and more about us. Interesting. Fascinating. So here's a couple points. If work is about service, then it literally changes our motivation. See, when your work is motivated by yourself and what you can accrue for yourself or what you can gain through more money, you ultimately end up not serving people. So let's take the example of a doctor. All right, do you want your doctor to be motivated by helping you or do you want your doctor motivated by money? Right, because if the motivation for someone to be a doctor is to make more money and to be wealthy then they're probably not going to serve you very well. And you're just going to be a check mark on a sheet to get to the next patient. And so our work needs to be about something more. So work is, and ultimately, it's about service to God. And if that's the case, it actually changes our motivation. And then secondly, if work is about service to God, it also changes what we do for work. And I think we need to be honest about this, that there are positions and there are things that you are maybe participating in or doing that is not part of what God's original design is for this planet. This is what uh, John Stott says. The kind of work that we are called to is the expenditure of energy, mutual or mental or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. John Mark Comer in Garden City says, what you do for work matters just as much as, if not more than, what you do with the money you make from your work. Right? Because there's, I'm, I'm sure there's people in this world that say, well, you know, the ends justify the means because I give a bunch of my money away, so therefore it's okay what I do. And that's not God's vision for our work. Because if our work is ultimately of service to God, it actually changes what some of us do. And we'd love to start creating conversation and dialogue around what this could look like. Well, our next motivation, as the scriptures talk to us about, is that work is actually a response to the gospel. Now, if you might be sitting there going, well, what is the gospel? Well, this is the gospel misunderstood. Okay, this is the gospel misunderstood. You go to our next point, Peter. Belief in Jesus Christ plus good work and deeds equals you are saved. Now, some of you might be sitting here going, that, that looks actually kind of okay. And this is where we need to just repent and realize that the gospel is far larger than this. Because if this is the perspective, some of you, where you would say, my job is of more value to the world than somebody else's job. This way of thinking actually supports you in that. And this is the way of thinking that at the time of Martin Luther and his Reformation, the priests that he was working alongside of were actually saying, we are more valuable to the world and we are better than people because of the jobs that we do. Because if good works and deeds are part of your salvation, then you could hold that above other people. 
It also changes your motivation about your work because if your motivation of work is to justify yourself, meaning you're trying to find meaning or purpose for yourself in what you do, well, according to God, it's not your works that define you. It's what the gospel has told you. So this is what the gospel properly understood is. We go to the next point. The gospel of grace understood is belief in Jesus Christ equals you are saved which then means you'll do good work. If you understand how you have been served and loved by the Most High God, and that it's not in what you do that saves you, but in the grace of God alone, you'll be motivated to serve other people with the same way. You know, it's been a problem in the church, historically, is that we honor and celebrate people that are in full-time ministry more than the rest of jobs. You maybe have seen this practiced in different ways. Do you know what ministry means? Service. So if it's full-time service, aren't we all in that? So let's get rid of that here. Because all of us are in full-time ministry. All of us or in full-time service to God. And what I do is no more valuable than what you do. And what you do is not more valuable than what I do. And this also changes the way that we see our hierarchical structure. Because for many people, we celebrate lawyers, professors, doctors. And so then people who are cleaning homes or doing something a little bit more humble are often like, well, I'm not offering as much value to the world. No, with the gospel, you're adding just as much value to the world because you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by grace alone. So do what you do with excellence and serve the Lord who's created you to do it. Amen. Because if, if you are cleaning homes, you're, you're preventing disease, ultimately. And you're helping someone else. It's incredible. Therefore, all work is equally valid. There is no hierarchy. So don't ever hold it above someone else with what you do. Well, that's what you do. Well, this is what I do. Stop it. You've been saved by grace. You can't hold that above somebody. And then the third motivation and reason for our work and why we work is that work is an act of love. The second part of verse 15 of Genesis 2 is to keep it, which is the Hebrew word shamar, which means to take care, which is watch over, protect, guard, and stand up for creation. So as our work flows from the gospel and an understanding of keeping and protecting creation, we do it as an act of love because we've been served and God works with us. And Jesus has worked in giving us salvation. And so we serve as an act of love. So I don't know what it is that all of you do, but here's your new motivation. Work is service to God. Work is an act of love, and work is a response to the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus, it automatically means that if you have responded to the gospel, you work differently. So then how do we work? Last question we will answer. Well, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says this, and you maybe have heard this verse before. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now you maybe have the question of, okay, I've heard that verse before, but what does it actually mean? Well, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Can everyone say kavod? Which means God's presence and his beauty. 
So this is how we work. We are to work in a way that displays God's presence and his beauty. So no matter what you do, you work in such a way that displays God's presence and his beauty. It's amazing. So, but let's get a little more specific. What, do, what could this mean? Well, I believe that the way that you can do this is competently and with excellence. One of the best ways that you can show off God's presence and beauty is doing really good work. Doing your work competently and with excellence. When others look at your work, they can then see God in it. And if they can, then you know you've done a good job. I think of uh, people that are in construction or renovation who take uh, things that are often dilapidated or homes or decks or these things and they redesign them and they rebuild them into something beautiful. So the people that drive by or the homeowners can be pleased with what they have. And people look at that and say, that is beautiful. When you create a song, as you write the words to that song, that you are then drawing people into the presence of God. That as you think about maybe you're working investments with people, that you invest in such a way that brings honor to God, but also serves your clients really, really well. You're looking out for their best interest, not the interest of you making more money. That whatever it is you do, what you are doing with competence and excellence. So that people almost have to stop and look and go, wow. They do that really well. You know, I think of Jeff here. Jeff, you're a landlord to, you know, 50 people. What does it look like to, to work with competence and excellence as a landlord? Right? I could go around the room and just pointing off. I won't do that to some of you. I know I'd be very scary. But uh, just think about it. What is it that you do? In every good endeavor, Keller gives the example of a pilot. The best way that a pilot can serve God to display his presence and beauty is landing a plane in one piece. Right? So it doesn't matter what you, maybe you're on an assembly line. You assemble things well. You do it to the best of your ability. And then the next part of this and how we display God's presence and beauty is that we do it with integrity. The dictionary defines integrity as this. The quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. The state of being whole and undivided. When people think of you in the workplace, do they think about you as someone with integrity? If they don't, unfortunately, they're not getting a very good representation of the gospel. Not because it's, the, it's your good works or your bad works that save you but because you're not representing the saving grace that you have received to then show it and be in that way to others. So when you are a Christian employee and you are being treated poorly by your employer, you have the grace of God to offer that person because you've been shown incredible grace. When your employer does something that it was really not right, in many ways you can offer them grace because you've done many things that are not right. Because the Christian perspective on the gospel of grace is that if someone bothers us, we actually realize that we are that person to God. So if you have a hard time, for example, forgiving somebody, how could God forgive you? And if he has, then you can offer that forgiveness to somebody else. So here's some questions. How do you respond to difficult situations at work? 
How do you respond to difficult people or supervisors at work? Do people see you as a positive influencer in your workplace? Are you countercultural in the way you conduct yourself? How about the language that you use? And are you motivated by money or for the good of all people? Do you work with integrity? Because you, when you work with integrity, you're displaying God to the world. You're harnessing the raw materials of the planet and you're making something beautiful and you're partnering with God and taking the world somewhere. That's amazing. This is what we are designed and created to do. This is incredible. It means that if you've ever felt like, you know, I just do this nine to five thing just because. No, God's with you. God's with you. He's looking after you. You know, it's in, in the role of being a pastor, specifically in church planting, while we do have structures of elders that ultimately I'm an elder and I kind of report in some way to the elders and leadership team, I've never technically had a, a, a physical boss or supervisor. And some of you are like, well, that's, that's pretty fortunate. But think about it this way. Oftentimes being a pastor, it's high stress, but it's low structure. So I could if I wanted, throw my sermon together in an hour and be on Facebook all day. You would never know. So if I'm working for myself to get ahead, then I would probably do that. And you could use other examples of things that you do for work, and you can see that if my, if my work is not motivated by the gospel and it's motivated by me, then wow, that's a slippery slope of what I'd be willing to do. See, as Christians, we understand that we are saved by grace alone through our faith. And so our boss is Jesus. So my, my, my thought has always been that if my supervisor and my boss is God, how would I work? So take that your supervisors have oftentimes been there and then they've not been there. What have you done when they're gone? Because your ultimate boss sees and he knows. Isn't that crazy? Can't get away with stuff with him. But then in the same way, we live out of an understanding that we are loved so deeply and affectionately so our motivation changes. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never responded to this gospel, maybe you're still living in the gospel misunderstood. And you know what? I struggle with the gospel misunderstood because it's where I revert to all the time. It's a temptation of my heart of, well, God, I'll just do more and then you'll love me more. No, he already loves me completely. And when I go back to that way of thinking, it's like saying, Jesus, you, you didn't, what you did wasn't enough. I need to continue to save myself. But I have been saved and I've been redeemed and I've been restored. And then he welcomes me. As I, you guys have heard me say before, he not just welcomes you to the table to watch and observe, but he says, partake. Enjoy what I have given you. So if you are someone that's never responded to the gospel of grace, I invite you to do that this morning. Realize that what you do and what you can be part of is valuable. 
what you do from nine to five. If we look at the civilization that we had, and if you were to stop doing what you're doing, some part of civilization would be affected. But you get to be part of it. That's good news. So this morning, you're invited, you can respond to Jesus. And if you are living in false motivations, this is an opportunity this morning and throughout the rest of the week for you to repent of your false motivations. If you haven't been working with integrity, this is your opportunity to just say, God, forgive me for my, my bad integrity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things, Lord, that you have created us and called us to do. I thank you that you've invited us to partner with you in taking the world somewhere. God, I pray for those of us in this room, Lord, that maybe through hearing this message today recognize that our jobs in no way are redemptive nor helpful to creation. And in fact, they actually harm what you've given us and exploit people. I thank you for the gospel of grace. God, that you've already forgiven us for this. And God, may you lead us and direct us into maybe a vocation, Lord, the thing that you have called us to do. And God, I pray for there's anyone in this room today, God, that has never turned to you, Jesus, as their motivation, turned to you as their legitimacy, turned to you as their identity, and who's maybe have continued to rely on their identity and what they do and how they do it. God, may you humble them today. Spirit, come, work in their heart, God, may you change them. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.